0: If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Romans. This morning there, we resume our study. As we begin Romans 14 this morning, as you know, if you've been with us any amount of time or whether you've kept up with us either in person or on the internet, you know we've been making our way through Romans. We took a break, but we've been back in it now for several Sundays. And this morning we continue in uh, this epistle to the Roman church as Paul uh, uses this 12 to 16 section to begin to put legs and feet, as it were, on the rich theology that we find in Romans 1 to 11. And we've looked at what it means to love one another well, and, and I'd argue that everything after Romans 12 is not a separate topic in terms of thinking, how do we love well and how do we sacrifice both for Christ and one another i would argue that this is just a continuation a continuation of that both in how we keep the law and our debt to to love one another which is the last thing that we looked at when we were in romans that that we were called to an, or we were obligated To love one another and to love one another well, to love one another sacrificially. And it becomes easy to let that type of love uh, be cliche or purely sentimental, but the type of love that Scripture would call us to embrace is not a sentimental. And by sentimental, what I mean is cheap, uh, no real worth or, or weight. I mean a love that really requires something from us. Uh, we have to lay down something in order to love well. That is exactly what Christ did. Christ laid down His life, and He told us that true, godly, biblical love was this idea that I am laying aside myself for the sake of others. So, we're, we're continuing to build on that. And and Romans 14, though it's talking about conscience and what you do and don't eat or what day you do and don't observe, we can't separate it from our call to love one another well. Even in matters of conscience, even in matters of, of personal conviction or the absence of conviction on certain things, we are called, how can I use my life, how can I use My experiences, how can I use my desires or lack of desires to love each other well? And, beloved, I'm convinced this is something that Christians really do struggle with. We really struggle in this area of conscience. And we struggle in one of two ways we judge people because they're not free like us, or we judge people because they don't have the same convictions as us. And at some point, we have to separate what is truly an ethical, moral issue of black and white, right and wrong, and what really is a matter of taste or preference. So we're not great at doing that. We, we tend to struggle there. <clears throat> and so I think it's right and good that Paul, just after he gives us the paragraph of no one, oh, no one, anything except to love one another, he begins to talk about the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Those who eat meat and those who don't eat meat. Those who observe days and those who don't observe days. Because there's an overarching fundamental principle that has to govern those types of things, and it's very simply stated love. How do we love each other well in those areas? And so without further delay, let's turn our attention to the text this morning. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. So follow along with me in your Bibles, if you would. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables." "'Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. "'The one who observes the day "'observes it in honor of the Lord. "'The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, "'since he gives thanks to God, "'while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord "'and gives thanks to God. "'For none of us lives to himself, "'and none of us dies to himself. "'For if we live, we live to the Lord.' will give an account of himself to God. So is the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather around this particular passage, and it has much to teach us. It has much to teach us about humility. It has much to teach us about boldness. It has much to teach us about grace. It has much to teach us about expectations. And Father, I pray we would be open to learn. Transform us through its truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we live in a culture, and you've heard me say this many times, where we hear statements like, uh, or statements about identity, and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're constantly in our midst. We hear them. Uh, we hear stuff like, I'm trapped in the wrong body, or, or it was a mistake to make me this way or someone got it wrong along the way. We hear all sorts of variations of those two things in particular. We hear it. It's everywhere. They're they're very common. Well, when we hear those things, we're hearing something very specific happen. We're hearing people, we're hearing culture at large. Not that I think that people who don't know Christ should know everything that we know. That's not what I'm about to harp on here for a second. Harp is a bad word. That's not what I'm about to take us through. But people in general have lost a sense of, God created me as I am, and I'm supposed to live this way. Now, beloved, we have to put that in its own category and take that as it stands in a whole host of contexts. God made me the way He wanted me. And do you know what that means? That means God made me the way He wanted me weaknesses, warts, and all for the purposes of showing his glory in me. Jesus, why was the man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? In other words, Jesus, why was he created that way? Was it some fault of his? Was it some fault of his parents? Jesus says, it was neither his fault nor his parents' fault, but it was done that the glory of God might be shown in him. we We, as a a general rule, humans have lost this idea. Even Christians sometimes have lost this idea that God has made us the way He wants us to be so that His glory might be seen in us. If If you pay attention to the news, if you pay attention to social media or media in general, you might think that humanity is a malady to fix rather than the express purpose of God's creative choice. People live that way. It's a malady to fix. In other words, every time they look in the mirror, they see something that needs to be fixed rather than one created in God's image. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a robot, so I'm human too, just like everybody in this room. And being human isn't easy. No one ever said it would be easy. The curse of sin makes it that much more difficult. And yet, we are called as those made in God's image to reflect Him, and that, beloved of God, is an incontrovertible truth. That's just true. Whether people accept it or not, whether people like it or not, whether people embrace it or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the truth of that reality, that we are called to reflect God's glory. Maybe some of us are stronger than others. Maybe some of us are weaker than others. Maybe the stronger brother looks or or sister looks at the weaker brother or sister and thinks with with thoughts of, oh man, I, I wish my life were that simple. Maybe the weaker brother or sister looks at the stronger brother or sister and they're like, man, I wish I had that freedom. Or however the case may go. But when we look at the church of God, there's one thing that we should see. We have strong brothers and sisters in the faith, we have weaker brothers and sisters in the faith, and as an aside, I'm merely using the categories that Paul gives us here. This is not my own thinking. These are the categories right out of Romans 14. But all of us, in our strength of faith and our weakness of faith, have been called by God to come together the way that He created us to reflect His glory, One of the very hearts of the Reformation was getting at this principle of soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And we see that glory nowhere than in the workmanship seated in these seats around this room, each individually made in the image of God that we might come together as a body to reflect Him. Now, it may seem odd to look at Romans 14 and consider what it means to have a set identity, you may be wondering where I'm going with that. And yet, I do think when you look at Romans 14, this is exactly what you see. Paul is not charging the stronger brother to back off or the weaker brother to beef up. What he says is God has welcomed them both. And so we need to embrace the positions that we in, that we are in insofar as they are right, good, beautiful, true, and biblical. And we need to accept the fact that another brother or sister might embrace a different position that is right, good, true, beautiful, and biblical that is different. That becomes the beauty of the body of Christ. Beloved, if God wanted us to be just alike, He would have made a non-diverse group. But every soul in this room brings a different experience, a different story, different strengths and weaknesses, all for the glory of God. And so, the 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 key is to welcome and embrace and not try to make people think like us sometimes people do need to think a little better and in those cases it's okay to try to make them think like i'm just kidding i mean it is good to help people in their thinking but we it needs to be around principles of truth and not just i want them to think more like me because we all suffer with the, if they just thought like me the world would be a better place and when I'm, when I'm clear enough, when I have enough lucidity to realize if everybody thought like me, we'd be in trouble. Um, so I'm thankful for the people who think differently. We see, I mean, or when we look at this issue, we, we, we come to this idea of the conscience and what conscience allows. The church is a very diverse place. What, what people embrace, what people don't embrace, what people are okay with, what people are not okay with. It is a very, very diverse place for some. Abstention is the most healthy course of action. They think to my general rule is to abstain, 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 abstain. And they look at that as their position. And some people say, well, no, 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 our reasonable indulgence is is perfectly legitimate. And I'm using reasonable there with indulgence because overindulgence is a bad thing in just about everything reasonable indulgence of being able to enjoy things without overdoing it some people say well no that's the most legitimate course well paul calls these categories weak and strong faith we've already said that and there's an important observation that we have to make right out of the gate paul doesn't unduly extol or condemn either position he doesn't extol or condemn either position what he says is is both come from god And both should be honored in the church. So we have to take that to heart because you know it is sad how often Christians argue over matters of opinion or conscience like those things are the objective truth. Like my opinion on a matter or your opinion on a matter or, or your conscience in an issue or my conscience is an issue becomes the litmus test for the righteousness of somebody else. Every one of us who've lived long enough in this room have done it. We've been quick to either silently or vocally give a little judgy statements about something because at the end of the day, really, it's just they think differently than us or we think differently than them. And beloved, I mean, conscience is going to give us more or less freedom, depending on a subject, and neither position of more or less freedom is ever, in any case, an invitation to condemn somebody. Now, we may look at somebody's quote-unquote freedom and decide they're very free, Maybe a little too free. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to come alongside and ask a few diagnostic questions about their freedom to make sure it is in keeping with biblical principles. That's fine. That's called discipleship. That's called love. That's called growth. What Paul is doing here is telling us not to get on a pedestal of judgment of other people because they have a different set of conscience um, convictions than we do. Because so we always got to be ready to confront sin. But making my position the, the non negotiable litmus test for righteousness is principally wrong. And people do it all the time. You come across people who you'll read or you'll listen to, and there's the wrong way and there's their way. And it's like, well, maybe sometimes. I mean, yeah, if you're saying, hey, the virgin birth is absolute, and if you don't believe that, you're wrong, sure. I can get behind that. That's right. Or if you want to say, hey, Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, and there's no argument, I can get behind that. But when you want to start start talking about secondary or tertiary issues as being the proof positive that someone is righteousness or not, we need to have a conversation at that point. Because we are not judge and jury. God gives diversity to His church. And you know what He tells us? within the bounds of Scripture, within the bounds of truth, that whatever we do, we do for God's glory. And so, that's our primary idea this morning, that whatever we do, we do for God's glory. David would say it a little bit differently in in Psalm 23, walk walk in the pathway of righteousness for His name's sake… Getting at this idea that what we do as the sheep in his pasture, we do for his namesake, and there's positive and negative connotations to that. But I want for us to understand that when we think about this weak and strong category, this weak and strong category is in faith, both are done and lived out with a conviction and a conscience given to Christ for the glory of God. And we have to understand that God uses both. So when we think about the, the weak and the strong in the faith, both are, are God's people, and they're both worthy of, of mutual respect. I think friendly debate is fine. I think spirited conversations are fine. I think it's fine to, to debate, to, if you want to, with, in love and charity, talk about the finer points of, of your position. But at the end of the day, we have to part with mutual respect and grace. Because we can't always appreciate where God has brought some people and the path it took to get them there. But insofar as it's in keeping with Scripture, we have to have latitude. When it comes here, Paul says, "As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions." As I've said a few times now since we've been back at Romans, this kind of functions as you could call it a thesis statement for these first 12 verses. It, it kind of lays the foundation for us. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, when again, when we're talking about weak, we are talking about a matter of tender conscience. This is not getting at this is this person is somehow deficient. That's not what Paul is saying. This person is somehow struggling with their salvation because they don't see the, the full range of freedom in Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about someone who keeps a very tender conscience, maybe a more tender conscience than you or me. And notice what he says welcome him. That welcome him is not this, it doesn't say put up with him, it doesn't say smile condescendingly, and when they walk away, go bless his heart. It is actively and expressly commanding us, the church, to welcome, to welcome that brother, to welcome the one who is of a tenderer conscience, who is perhaps maybe weaker as using Paul's category in the faith. And then he says, welcome him, imperative command, and welcome him. In other words, be bold. But then do not argue or quarrel over opinions. So the first thing, it's almost as if Paul understood human nature. Welcome him in so you can argue him right out of his point. That's not what Paul says. In fact, Paul says quite the opposite. Welcome him in and don't argue about his point. You're not welcoming him in to argue because the truth, beloved, we'll have plenty of opportunities to debate and argue and live and maybe die for truth. And it's too important. For us to get caught up in arguing over matters of personal preference or our own opinions. Everybody's got opinions, everybody. We all have them, and that's okay. We should. You should form opinions about most everything. But we should understand when it's a matter of truth and it's a matter of opinion. When it's a matter of sin and righteousness or it's just a matter of personal preference. And let The wisdom to know the difference reign in our lives. As I said, we have to guard against this, that my personal preference is right. And if you disagree, you're wrong. Because it's not always true. In a lot of things, there's a whole range of right answers that can be on a spectrum of great and small. And it's a matter of where one might fall on that particular spectrum. Now, again, please, I do not want you to walk away from here saying, the pastor at the chapel thinks we shouldn't confront sin because somebody may be right. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. If somebody comes and confesses a sin and you call that sin wrong, good, you should. We should do that for one another. But in issues that are not salvific in nature, i.e., they're not matters of salvation, or someone may have a different opinion, even if you think it's the worst, it's your opinion, and they're free to hold it. There are sometimes when I hear things, I go, "Uh-uh, no way." But it's a matter of opinion. And I'm sure sometimes people hear me and they go, "Uh-uh, no way." It's a matter of my opinion. Paul gets into this, so, so he gives us this truth statement here. This is the premise, and then he, he begins to lay it out example-wise. So verses 2 to 4 deal with the one eating and one not eating. The so person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So in other words, you have these people who will eat meat and the people who won't. So the, the, the first question we would want to answer is in Paul's context, why would there be people abstaining? And there's really two answers to this. So Paul would have been talking to a Jewish church, I mean a, a Gentile church in Rome that was a mixture of Gentile and Jewish people, probably more Gentile than Jewish, but a, a mixture nonetheless. And Jewish people would want to avoid eating meat to avoid eating something that is, by dietary law, unclean. This would be an unclean animal, animal and not fit for them to eat. Gentiles who did not have the same dietary laws might decide they don't want to eat meat because that meat possibly has been sacrificed to an idol. And so you have these two groups of people who are motivated by very tender consciences. Both of them have the same motivation. I don't want to do something that might be an offense to God. Now, we already know from Acts that Peter was told that all things are clean to eat. Jesus himself said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out, kind of setting the stage for re-understanding that particular dietary law. But at the end of the day, Paul says the church is going to be filled with people who don't eat meat and people who eat meat. And one will eat And one one won't. And so, we are not to pass judgment on one who eats or despise one who abstains. Because the tender of conscience, beloved, whether we think it's right or not, should avoid what violates their conscience. And we have to be gracious and make room for that and not sit in silent judgment over this person thinking, why can't they just be free? Because God hasn't put them there yet. Thank God. I mean, if you are there, praise God for that. God has brought you along a path in a different way. But we have to make room for people to have their own conscience and not impose ours on to other people, or making them feel silly, or making them feel stupid, or making them feel unchristian if their opinion on a matter, Paul uses here, eating meat or not eating meat, happens to be different than ours. Because eating and not eating, as we're told here, not to pass judgment, i.e. not to condemn. To condemn is to violate the principle that we learned in Romans 13. We're not loving them well, even if we're silently condemning and not saying anything. Because here's the problem. When we silently condemn and we build a case in our minds without ever saying anything, thinking, okay, well, I won't say anything, but you're already coloring how you see that person. And now when you see that person, you start seeing more negative than positive because everything comes to that grid of not really loving them because you've made judgments about what they do or don't do. It gets complex real quick. Then we find that in relationships, we have shorter fuse, maybe with that person. We don't think as highly of them as we ought. And beloved, I can describe it so well, because I'm guilty. I've done that very thing. Of looking at someone through the grid of my opinion, instead of honoring them well enough to say, but their conscience is different than mine. And we have to guard against that because you know what we need here? We need loving relationships. And the easiest way to break those is to have condemnation towards one another in our hearts over things that don't matter. What does Satan love to do is to divide. How does he divide? We can focus on the big sins. Well, I'm not slandering. I'm not gossiping. I'm not being... But if we're harboring ill will in our hearts, we're letting a poison and death fester. And it will kill a community. So when we think about this, it is what what Paul says here is, for God has welcomed him, verse 3. So it's God who calls and equips the weak and the strong. It's God who calls and equips the weak and the strong. And he kind of culminates here in verse 4. Who who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, we're all accountable. We're accountable to God. Who are you to pass judgment on another? Now I want to qualify the statement because it's important that we qualify. Because so often people can take that, and what they hear is you can't make a judgment or an observation about another brother or sister. So, in a different context, I want to read something real quick. You don't have to turn there. You can, you can listen. He says, I, I wrote to you, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or as an idolater, or viler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And listen to what Paul says Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, the interesting thing there is that word judge in the Greek means to judge, but it also means to condemn. This is where contextually we have to understand what Paul is doing. We have to make judgments about people and fruit and actions to understand whether or not we should have fellowship with those people. So coming back to then Romans 14, when Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another, the idea that Paul is driving at there is not making observations, not looking at outward behavior and making judgment calls, but not condemning somebody on the basis of something very slight. We're not to condemn anybody at all, but certainly not just because they have a different pattern of conscience matters than we do. And so he says we're all the servants of God, and we will all give an account to God. That doesn't mean that we don't still walk with each other and help each other see our blind spots. But here's the thing. Here's what we have to keep clear as Christians. You and I are called to judge the fruit of things, to look at the outgrowth of a life and to make judgments about those things, not condemnation, not being mean, but it is God who judges the root of the matter, i.e., we look at the actions and the fruit. God judges the root and the heart of a person. And we have to keep that category clear and not look at someone and think, what a reprobate, just because they have a different opinion. We need to be careful because that is not done in the spirit of love Paul builds on this. He goes in, in verses 5, really 5 through, through 9, more or less, about days. So we've looked at dietary things. Now we look at days. One person esteems a day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Mind could be heart. Mind could be person. Mind there is uh, illustrative of the whole person. But when we think about days, days are like food. Now, so, so, a person still has to do what their conscience demands. Now, what in the world was Paul talking about here about days? Well, I've probably the most likely context is some understanding of how Sabbath was done. But not just Sabbath, we could also think of holy days, because keep in mind, going back to this congregation of, of people that would have had Jews and Gentiles in it, you still had a segment of Christians who were from, of Jewish descent who thought it vital to observe the Sabbath like they were taught in the Old Testament, to observe the holy days, which is where we get our word holiday from, like they did in the Old Testament, as matters of importance regarding their salvation. And so what Paul is doing here is he's helping them understand celebrate those days. Don't celebrate them the way that they were done in the Old Testament. But however you're going to live, we've got to live to the glory of God. So how do we understand the Sabbath? Well, beloved, it's fundamentally different than we did in the Old Testament. It's one of the things that Jesus in His life and death and resurrection, He has fulfilled. Now, what makes Sabbath day and Sabbath principle different is this. We have talked about before creational ordinances that humans were created to get married, to labor, and to rest. Those are fundamental to humanity, whether we have holy days, special days, or not. And so the rhythm of labor, rest, and worship, and marriage are part of our DNA. And so what Paul is driving at here is people get so hung up on the day that it happens that they lose the heart of what we're doing when we gather We need to be, remember it's not about the day, it's about the activity on that day. What are we gathered to do? Are we gathered to check off a box like good Pharisees, or are we gathered to worship? And we can do that on Sunday, we can do that on Monday, we can do that on Tuesday. The day that we have chosen is the Lord's day per the New Testament. But Paul is trying to get this church to recognize that you can't tie your salvation to outward actions, and you can't tie the salvation to another of, well, they're not saved because clearly they don't this. Now, we can look at actions and make a pretty good diagnosis of somebody's life, but the judgment is God's. So, whether we eat, what day we worship should be marked by one very important thing, gratitude. Gratitude. Oh, man, Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this brother or sister who may challenge me in my thinking, but thank you that they're different. Thank you that I hear a different perspective. Thank you that you have brought me out of this world. And so then this stand that we make for days, our food, it's not an opportunity for pride. It's an opportunity for gratefulness. Oh, man. We sang beautiful songs this morning of, of worship, of reminding us to be grateful for what God is doing, has done, and will do for us. And I love what Paul does here. So he, he just says, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord, in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What is the primary question we need to be asking about do's and don'ts here? Is my motivation solideo deo gloria, the glory of God? Because when God's glory is the motivation, beloved, we can be thankful for different opinions in different areas. Paul says here, For none of us, verse seven, lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. In other words, none of us are our own. We've been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. So as the we we quoted from the Heidelberg catechism this morning, uh, the first question um, What is our hope in life and death? that we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. That we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. That we live, I think Gardner mentioned this one of the last times he preached, quorum Deo, for the face of God. That we live soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. That we're not our own. That we have been redeemed. And I love that he encapsulates within this, Within this subject, about whether we live or whether we die, because die we will. And what is the driving principle in life and death? That Jesus Christ is Lord and we are His. And in fact, Paul mentions, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the living and the dead, capturing the cross and the resurrection that Christ is Lord of all. So what does Paul do here? Paul roots our lives in the lordship of Christ. Whether we live, whether we die, we're to be faithful. Whether we eat, whether we don't eat, we need to be faithful. Whether we observe days, don't observe days, we need to be faithful. And in all that faithfulness, that there is no condemnation one to another. That we don't condemn each other because he says this why why do you pass judgment on your brother or you why do you despise your brother causal statement 4 because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God every one of us will we will all stand before the judgment seat of God the judgment seat that Jesus described as just judgment the place where things are right and good and true. For if we disagree with people in this life, what condemnation, what judgment could we possibly conjure up for them that is worse than the wrath of God? Not a thing. So we become fruit inspectors, but we leave the judgment to God. And why is that? Well, Paul tells us, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. In other words, God will ultimately get the glory. It's a matter of embracing the people that God gives us with a with with goal of growing with them and walking with them and being transformed with them because each of us will give an account of himself to God That gives us opportunities to cling to Christ in this world, to cling to Christ in mind and heart and body and soul, to cling to Christ. When Paul says, when I was among you, I knew nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Paul's way of saying he clung to Christ. We are called in this world to cling to Christ and beloved, here's what we can do. This has been a matter of conviction for me this week of saying, hey, maybe we can repent in ways in which we've tried to impose our consciences and preferences on to other people as a litmus test for righteousness and figure out ways to love people where they are, challenge where things need to be challenged, but to love and to love with the love of Christ. When we look at this, the strong and the weak of faith, they're God's gift to His people. All of us are God's gift. But it's interesting because well, often in these matters, whoever is different from us is the weaker brother, right? Whoever is different from me, that's the weaker brother, that's the weaker sister. That's almost always how it is. We think of them in that category. They're the weaker brother, they're the weaker sister. Whether that's truly the case or not, it's not the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they are or they aren't. The question we ask is: is, do we see those who are different in thinking and application as a genuine gift to the church of God? a genuine gift to God's people. Our objective should not be to make people think we are right and they are wrong on every single matter of doctrine. Maybe that's true. I'm not the judge and jury. But that's not our goal. Much of God's instruction is non-negotiable with regard to understanding, but much of it is highly negotiable in how we apply it and the ripple effect that it might make in the lives of other people. So we need to imitate Christ in love, obedience, and truth and give God much gratitude for the diversity of godly people He brings in our lives who think differently than us. Because, beloved of God, the days are upon us where the church of God has to unite and be bound together. And we can't let petty arguments rip us apart. One of Satan's favorite tools is small divisions that create fissures and cracks that divide a people. Let's say no to that, and yes to the Lord Jesus and His call to love. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this morning and this time and this topic. It's not always easy. It's not easy to navigate. certainly not easy to always know the right and best answer, and yet in Your Word this morning, I feel like You've made it abundantly clear to embrace the diversity, to choose charity and grace in tertiary and secondary issues, to stand firm on the doctrines of Scripture that call us into spaces of very black and white answers, but to allow grace in places where it doesn't. And give us mercy to be thankful, to be loving, and to be kind. This through Christ we pray. Amen.